Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, continuing along with uh, another episode of Cary Grant, uh, you know, moving from Bristol to America, really finding himself uh, in the theater, uh, following Charlie Chaplin. And uh, so let's, let's pick this up. So Archie's dreams of the future stretched across the ocean like expanding tubes of a telescope until on July 28th, the tip of Lower Manhattan finally came to view. As the Olympics slowly pulled into New York's harbor on the Hudson River, Archie stood on deck with his hundreds of other passengers, the salt spray cooling his face in the hot sun as they sailed past the silent, welcoming gaze of the Statue of Liberty. When he turned his head in the other direction, while the great ship was carefully tugged into 46th Street's white steel pier, he could see the first time the magnificent tall buildings in Lower Manhattan. Mr. and Mrs. Fairbanks and the other first-class passengers disembarked to fireworks in the live brass band, while hundreds of photographers and newsreel cameramen and hordes of well-wishers celebrated the return of the larger-than-life screen legends. By the time Pender's troop deboarded, much of the pomp, press, and people had gone. Archie and his others had missed all the excitement because of them getting bogged down in the extra-long tedium of customs reserved for steerage passengers. His first steps onto American soil were taken over dead steamers and punctured balloons strewn along the wooden pier, as he and the others made their way to the waiting taxis that Lomas had arranged to take them to their hotel. The entire troop had been booked into the 48th Street. We cater to the theatrical trade residential hotel, just west of 8th Avenue, about three quarters of a mile from where they had docked. After lugging his own bags up four flights to his hotel room, Archie barely had time to unpack when a slip of paper went under the door and informed him that the company was to attend a reception that evening personally arranged and supervised by Charles Dillingham to be held on the stage of the famed Broadway Globe Theater. Archie was ready to go an hour before departure time. Dillingham intended the welcome party as a way to formally introduce the Penders to Fred Stone, the star for whom they had, opened, had booked the opening through. The evening went well though enough with relations between Stone and the troop cordial, if not warm. They, they cooled even more the next day when Stone caught a glimpse of the troop's rehearsals. He didn't like what he saw, not because they were so bad, but because they were too good. Stone feared that the Pender's spectacular physical feats, far better than he had heard, particularly the stilt-walking routine, would be impossible for him to follow, and he insisted that be taken off the bill. It was a blow for the Penders and, and for Dillingham as well. He had invested a lot of money in this booking, personally financing the trip over from England, and needed to find a new way to recoup. The next day, Dillingham released a statement to the press saying that because of the physical limitations of the globe, Penders stilt-walking giants, as his players were advertised in the American trades, would not be appearing after all, 
and he had arranged to book them instead into another of his contracted venues, the cavernous New York Hippodome, billed by the showman as the world's largest theater. Its front curtain was a full city block long. The Hippodrome was the permanent home of the Good Times venue, meant to compete with the Ziegfeld Follies, the talk of the town at the new Amsterdam Theater. Good Times was a world-class extravaganza, complete with elephants, zebras, monkeys, horses, acrobats, fireworks, dazzling light shows, solo singers, cyclists, dancers, chorales, musicians, magicians, and a self-contained water show that featured dozens of female swimmers and male divers in a stage tank containing 960,000 gallons of water. Dillingham hoped the Penders, still act, would now give the show a dash of Old World Music Hall. In a sequence squeezed in between the elephants and the zebras, like producer, like a producer billed as the toy store, the stilt walkers were all made up to look like toys and came alive at night after all the people went home. On August 9th, barely a week after a half of the day he arrived in America, Archie made his American debut as one of the stilt walkers in Dillingham's Good Times Review. The act received great notices in the press, and the group settled in for a long run. Between performances, Archie and the others quickly developed a regular routine of performing, laundering their own clothes and cooking their own meals on hot plates in their rooms. To avoid homesickness, several of the boys paired off and roomed together. At one point, Archie developed a strong crush on a gorgeous, leggy blonde in the Good Times Chorus by the name of Gladys Kincaid. His first case of show business-related unequipped love. As Grant would later recall, here I was, 17, and capable of sufficient progression toward testing that birds and beats speeds theory by myself. The self-confessed, still virginal archery, Ar Archie never even got to hold Gladys's hand. He spent one afternoon shopping for a present for her at Macy's, but rather than buy her a lover's lure, some fancy lingerie or imported perfume, he chose a multicolored woolen coat sweater, scarf, combination, which got him nothing more from Gladys than a puzzled look followed by a motherly pat on his handsome cheek. The only physical comfort Archley managed to get in those days was back at the hotel, engaging in the kind of adolescent games of sexual exploration and experimentation typical of all British boys from boarding schools. The, the review ran on Broadway for another nine months, then embarked on a year-long tour of the famous B.F. Keith vaudeville circuit, which took him to the major cities east of the Mississippi. As it happened, the Keith circuit traveled the same route as, as a New York Giants baseball team, and because all the games were played in daylight, Archie was able to see a good number of them. Having never heard a baseball game before coming to America, he became endlessly fascinated by the intricacies of the game and developed a love for it that would last a lifetime. He also met quite a few successful actors on the circuit and a few unknowns, mostly understudies, 
and last-minute fill-ins, among them a New York hoofer by the name of James Cagney. But none amused him or impressed him more than the Marx Brothers, whose vaudeville routines later became the basis for many of their zany movies. While the rest of the, the country preferred Groucho, Zeppo, the good-looking straight man, and romantic lead was Archie's favorite, and one whose foil timing he believed was the real key to the act's success. Not long after, Archie began to, to augment his already well-practiced, suave Fairbanks, Fairbanks look and dress with a Zeppo-like fancy bow tie called a jazz bow in the day uh, during the Roaring Twenties and copied his brilliant teen hairstyle, adding Dixie Peach, the favorite promenade of an American black performer who showed business leads by the palm fill of his thick mop to give it a molded, comb-streaked, blue-black Zeppo sheen. The Keith Circuit tour ended in January of 1922, just days shy of Archie's 18th birthday, which roughly coincided with the expiration of his original contract. After four years in America, Lomas was exhausted by all the traveling, especially by the long distances between stops that made touring much more difficult in the States than back in England. He was ready to bring the boys home and assumed that Archie and the others would be eager to depart as well. To his surprise, not only Archie, but most all the others chose to stay in America. Lomas agreed, give them all the equivalent of their passage money and some additional funds to help them settle in, and bade them all in a warm farewell. He then sailed with his family back to England and to obscurity, never again to achieve the level of popularity there where he had enjoyed prior to his visit west. In his absence, the world of British music hall had all but vanished. Its theaters converted to accommodate the working public's newest favorite form of entertainment, feature-length motion pictures. Back in America, Archie, who quickly split from the others, was, for the first time, now on his own in New York City and loving it immensely. Freed from the never-ending regimentation and grind of traveling and performing, he now intended to relax and enjoy the city. He loved traveling around in open-air buses down Fifth Avenue to Greenwich Village, then back uptown in the enclosed ones that went up Broadway, all the way to Harlem. He marveled at the tall residential apartment buildings all along the west side that were so unlike the one- and two-story family dwellings that dotted Bristol. He also enjoyed riding the IRT subway all the way to the Bronx and then back to the Battery. On sunny days, he liked walking through Central Park or visiting Grant's tomb or taking the ferry to see the Statue of Liberty up close. All too soon, however, the little money that he had left ran out, and in the fall of 1922, he found himself broke and out of a job. He reluctantly moved out of his single room at the hotel and into the apartment of another struggling artist, George, or what they called him Jack, Ori Kelly, who had a small loft on Barrow Street in the village, situated behind a legitimate theater. Ori Kelly, originally from South Wales, and named by his mother after her favorite garden flower, 
was one of, was one of the few new friends Archie had made in America. Although exactly when or how remains quite unknown, Grant makes no mention of Ori Kelly in his autobiography, though. When Archie told him of his current situation, the set designer offered to let him share his living space, and the out-of-work actor quickly and gratefully accepted. It is not difficult to understand why Archie liked him. At 24, Ori Keller was seven years Archie's senior, smart, sophisticated, city-seasoned, tall, and good-looking. He dressed impeccably, presented himself with confidence, and benefited from a quick and verbal wit. Like Archie, Ori Kelly was the son of a tailor. Archie's father, primarily a presser, had done some tailoring for the military while he lived in Southampton. Like Archie, he had migrated at an early age to America to find work in the theater. But unlike Archie, he was extremely ephemerate and open and openly and abashedly gay. During all the time they lived together, Archie would try to cherry pick those qualities the most admired in Ori Kelly. Even as he struggled to deal with an undeniable physical attraction to his new and charismatic roommate. With this time on his hands, Archie began to frequent the National Vaudeville Artist Club on West 46th Street, a gathering place for performers like himself in search of a lead on a new job or word of the traveling company that was passing through and needed a pickup performer. Most often, all he found was a soft chair and a courtesy cup of tea. Archie, Archie auditioned for several Broadway shows, but the advantages of his handsome face and tall, athletic body were offset by the still noticeable traces of his working-class British accent, which made him cast, which made casting directors reluctant to hire him. He became increasingly intimidated by the act of auditioning, a fear he later recalled that manifested itself in the form of a reoccurring dream. Standing in the center of a lighted stage, Archie is surrounded by a large cast of actors and unable to remember his lines. The result is always the same, public humiliation, for not being able to perform and deliver. The dream, with all its socio-sexual implications, appears, by all accounts, including Grant's, to have begun approximately the same time Archie moved in with Ori Kelly. Also around that time, Archie managed to earn some money by serving as a male escort to several of the most socially acceptable women in the city. He fell into this type of work after he befriended a fellow he would later identify only as Marx, an easy-time hustler of the type that operated on the fringes of New York theater community. One night, Marx set him up to accompany Lorez Labore, the famous the, the world-famous Metropolitan Opera Lyric Soprano a swank par- in a Swank Park Avenue affair. The idea of acting the role of a black-tie escort appealed to Archie, and Marx easily convinced him that his good looks made him well-equipped to play the part. The evening with Bory proved to be the successful debut of a character who would one day be recognizable to all the world, a handsome, charming rake dressed in the finest tux with an appealing manner, cleft chin, and devastating smile.
that night, mingling in the upscale crowd, Archie met a fellow by the name of George Tillyu Jr. Over cognac and small talk, a relaxed Archie revealed his secret to Tillyu, that he was, in fact, less than he appeared to be. Beneath all the gloss, tails, and sheen, he told his new friend that he was just one out-of-work actor picking up a few dollars by playing Bory's date. Tillyu got a great kick out of it, and when Archie told him that his best talent was walking on stilts rather than carrying on airs, Tillyu burst out laughing and told him he might be able to help him out with a great new job. His late father and he said had created, and his family still owned and operated, Coney Island's famous Steeplechase Park amusement attraction. They exchanged phone numbers, and when Archie called him the next day, Tillyu proved as good as his word. He had managed to secure a park job for Archie as, of all things, a stilt walker. A few hours later, Archie found himself dressed in a bright green coat, jockey's cap, and long black pants. Tillyu directed him to walk around the boardwalk on stilts, wearing a wooden sandwich board advertising the steeplechase was open. It was undeniably a step down, and Archie knew it. But escort work was far from steady, and he desperately needed the money to extend his stay in America. The $40 a week he received from Tillyu, in a job that earned him the nickname Rubber Legs, was almost enough to make his ends meet. To get the rest, besides occasional escorting gigs, he sold hand-painted ties that Ori Kelly made in their Greenwich Village apartment, which had lately become a bit more cramped than Ori Kelly took in another roommate, an Australia fellow by the name of Charlie Phelps, whose financial contribution was badly needed. How and when Phelps first appeared in Ori Kelly's life remains unknown, although it may actually have been Archie's who met him first aboard the Olympic on his voyage across the Atlantic, for which Phelps, a bit of a vagabond, had hired on a steward in order to gain his passage to America. Archie told Ori Kelly, Kelly's tie, sold Ori Kelly's ties on a street corner during the day and night he served as a household cook, specializing in the, the fried and breaded Dover sole and crisp chips all three were so fond of in their youth. Fresh sole was available daily at the nearby docks, and after spending several hours selling his wares, Archie always enjoyed walking over and picking out a couple of freshly caught fish, then buying his other ingredients from the so many ethnic shops that flourished on the streets of the West Village in preparation of that evening's family dinner. A few months later, Dillingham announced auditions for Better Times, his sequel to Good Times, scheduled to play in the summer at the Hippodome. Archie quickly contracted with the other members of the Penders, still in America, and suggested they reunite, train, and try out as unified act for the show. When they, when they met nearby, they auditioned for Dillingham, who immediately hired their still act as a featured spot for the new extravaganza. Better Times opened on Labor Day weekend, August 31st of 1922, and after seven months that it felt like a lifetime of unemployment, Archie was back working on Broadway, 
The show ran for six months, and when it closed, Archie was able to convince the others to stay together to form their own company, the Lamas Troupe, named after the man who first brought them together. Archie proved a diligent manager and soon had the group booked onto the Pantagate Circuit, a national vaudeville trail that traveled across the country, including a few stops in Canada before arriving in Los Angeles to play the circuit's namesake theater on Hollywood Boulevard, the West Coast equivalent of New York's famed palace. On his first day off in L.A., Archie explored Hollywood just as he had in New York City, alone, unplanned, and unhurried. He traveled once more by bus and the many trolleys that crisscrossed the city, and mostly, as everyone else seemed to though in those days, on foot. He strolled up and down the sparkling pavement of Hollywood Boulevard, marveling at the palm trees along the sidewalks, the first real ones he had ever seen, and tried to keep his head tilted toward the sky to catch some of the glorious sunshine that quickly and beautifully bronzed his face. During one of his evening performances at the Pantage Theater on Hollywood Boulevard, Archie was visited backstage by Douglas Fairbanks, who read about the show in the trades and remembered the youngster's name from their voyage to America aboard the Olympic. Archie was astonished, both by the visit and by Fairbanks' invitation for him to visit the set of his latest production, The Thief of Baghdad. The next afternoon, Archie did just that, as if we're in the eye of a hurricane. He stood motionless to the side of the massive film stage, while dozens of behind-the-scenes workers scurried all around him. Then suddenly, he heard the name, his name being called, and he spotted Fairbanks, a wide smile on his face, waving him over for a quick but friendly chat before he shot the next scene. It was a day young Archie Leach will never forget. When the troops' engagement... At the Pantage ended, Archie reluctantly returned to New York, dreaming of the day that he would be able to return to Hollywood and make movies of his own. Back in Manhattan, Archie fell into the familiar routines of escorting, selling ties on the street, keeping house with Ori Kelly and Charlie, and spending many an afternoon at the NVA club. Acting work was, and always, hard to find, and Archie took whatever morsels came by. Because he could move well, he'd been an occasional booking as half a song or dance duo, his partner being whatever young, out-of-work actress may be available at the time. For the union scale pay of $62.50 a night, he and his unassigned partner would trot out onto one of the many new and cavernous movie houses that had sprung up in the suburbs across the river in New Jersey and dance scratchly to recordings played between features while indifferent audiences filed in and out and took their seats. Among the younger theatrical casting directors he on a regular basis stopped by to see was Gene Darmfile and eventually put him in a vaudeville skit called The Woman Pays, which played several months on the junior orphan stage circuit. The gig is notable because it marks the first speaking role. The skit was written by Dormfoyle, centered on Archie, the handsomest man in town, being the unwitting object of two overzealous women trying to win his affections. By the time the tour ended, Archie and Dormfoyle had become good friends, and slowly, 
with her guidance, he developed a strong reputation as a willing and reliable straight man for whatever vaudeville stars came to town for one-offs, one-night performances. Straight man work was unpopular among the more established actors, who disliked playing the fool, the foil, or the mark, setting up jokes for comedians who made them, and only them, look good. Archie, however, was more willing to do what, whatever kind of work there was, but soon ran into new problems of one, including Darfoil, had anticipated. Comics like Milton Berle were reluctant to use him because his good looks made it look too difficult for his audiences to accept him as the dummy. Burl was a particularly physical, pie-in-the-face type who, like so many jokesters, considered himself also something of a ladies' man, who did not appreciate being outstaged by someone as attractive to women as Archie. At the opening night of one of these gigs, Archie found himself among many of the glittery New York's finest of vaudeville, including comedians George Burns and Gracie Allen. Burns had heard about Archie and wanted to meet him. Archie invited Ori Kelly to accompany him to the party. Things have not always been going well between the three roommates, and Archie saw this as a chance for just the two of them to get out of the, out of the apartment and have a good time together. While Archie was away on, on tour, Ori Kelly had begun, began to get steady work on Broadway as a costume designer for such theatrical luminaries as the great Ethel Barrymore. Archie had wanted him to stay at home and leave wage earning to him, but for Ori Kelly, career was not just the first, but the only priority. Unfortunately, things came to a head at the party when Archie, Archie and Ori Kelly got into a loud shout, shouting match that horrified the other guest, Burns in particular, was disgusted by the public display and asked friends why everyone had to be a witness to all this homosexuality. Believing he and Ori Kelly had come into an impasse in their relationship, Archie began seeing more of Lester Steed, another vaudevillian star 10 years his senior, whom he had first met when both were appearing at the Hippodrome, Suede, when they made the first name for themselves playing Fonzo, the boy wonder in skirts. Before retiring from the stage to become a full-time agent, shortly after the argument with Ori Kelly at the party, Archie began spending nights at Swed's apartment. He also began to accept more of the constant offers for Marks to do escort work. His good looks had made him quite popular among the wealthy women around town, and it was an open secret among them that the social services of the handsome young actor could be acquired for an entire evening at a quite reasonable cost. Socializing with the tuxedo allowed Archie to observe, close up, the physical mannerisms of the wealthy and helped him iron out many of his lingering cultural wrinkles from his own limited upbringing. He listened carefully to the way these people spoke and worked incessantly on modulating his lingering British sing-song lilt into a more descending American rhythm. He practiced his walk to eliminate his street roll, the result of his slightly bowed, naturally acrobatic rubber legs. All this physical fine-tuning resulted in his becoming even more attractive to women who hired him. And while his increasing presence 
among the upper strata of New York's social scene may have been mostly decorous. It bothered Ori Kelly that Archie was rapidly gaining a name as the number one gigolo in town, and that such a reputation could hurt both of their careers. One night over dinner, Ori Kelly made it official. Their relationship was over, and Archie would leave the apartment for good. With his love life in shambles, a tainted reputation, and not a penny to his name, Archie moved out. For the next year and a half, he rented a room an SRO and the NVA club in Times Square. Fearful that escorting was ruining any chance he might have at making a living on Broadway, he took a series of dead-end jobs on tables and wearing a billboard for a Chinese restaurant across the street from Macy's department store. Years later, to cover up the failure of his humanism of these times, Grant insisted that in 1925, at the age of 21, he returned to England to appear in a repertoire with the Nightingale Players. In fact, he never left America at all. Instead, he remained in New York City, lost, lonely, and knocking around until 1927. The same year he later claimed to have returned from the British rep to the United States and New York City. One thing is certain, the year 1927 would signal the creative rebirth of Archibald Leach.